Welcome to Basecamp, an Ethnos 360 MK Care podcast. I'm Steve Swope, and I'm here with Pete Ammerman, and we're your hosts for this podcast. We're part of the MK Care team for Ethnos 360, and our team exists to assist our MKs and their families by providing care and resources to help them thrive in the transitions that come hand in hand with ministry life. At the end of today's podcast, we'll give you information on how you can connect with us. We're glad you're joining us today. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode. We're very excited about this one. This is one that we hear a lot of people asking for. So we'll be talking about finances in America. What is it like here in America when it comes to moving into this culture and understanding the financial world and how to exist in it, especially for college students or just after college? So we're really excited. We have an awesome awesome guest. We have Sam Bradley coming in. He's an MK from Paraguay. He was raised out there, as was his wife, and then they got married here in the U.S. Uh, We're really excited to have him on. I got to meet and get to hang out with Sam back in 2010 and 2011, back when we were at the Bible school. And so, Sam, thank you so much for being willing to come on and chat with us today. Ah, thank you guys both for having me and just for anybody that's listening uh, for taking the time. I'm super excited. Awesome. Yes. So, Sam, can you share a little bit about your childhood and kind of your college years, maybe kind of your transition into the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was five, my parents moved down to South America to, to be missionaries. My dad had visited uh, Indonesia when he was younger, quite a bit younger, and um, knew he wanted to be a missionary from an early point in life. And so uh, he married my mom, had a couple of kids, and we moved down to 95. And within a couple of years, we were out in a tribe. My dad's role was a little bit non-traditional. He ran a ranch. So even though he was with new tribes, because it was a requirement of the government in Paraguay that you provide for the physical needs of the people that you were working with. And so he ran a ranch. We were part of a team of four or five families, depending on furloughs and things like that. When we moved down to Paraguay, there were four of us. My brother Josh was born shortly after. It ended up being 12 of us. So grew up in a big family, grew up in the tribe, did not uh, go to any kind of a boarding school. Paraguay had them, um, but we did not. We were homeschooled. Our first few years in the tribe, we had a lot of uh, American MKs in the tribe with us, but then they all kind of transitioned to more support roles and ended up just being us for the most part. And then there were a couple of families that came later, much younger kids. So um, we really integrated into the tribe. I mean, mm. even amongst ourselves, just naturally to this day, we still speak the tribal language. Still, I still find myself uh, doing things and sometimes even apologizing for my behavior <laughs> because I feel so monhui. So yeah, I did that was that was childhood hunting, fishing, soccer, volleyball, a lot of a lot of fun stuff. It was a great great way to grow up. When I was nineteen, I graduated high school, homeschooled, graduated high school, stayed an extra year in Paraguay because at that point I had started to date my now wife, whose parents were in support role. So I stayed a year later because she's two years behind me, so that we would not be too far apart in Bible school. Hmm. I went to Bible school first, but I was actually following her. So even though she, <laughs> she came a year later, I was technically following her. I had no intention of going to Bible school, went through a bit of a rebellious period in my teen years and did not have any intention of going to Bible school. I didn't want, I didn't want to give the, I didn't want to give the Lord an opportunity to convict me that I needed <laughs> to be a missionary, but you, I fell in love. And so I ended up going to Bible school. Um, so transition to the States, you know, we had come back. Uh, several times for furlough. I had jobs, worked on ranches in Montana, which was our home state, but transitioned to Bible school in 2009. I had spent the summer as a camp counselor in Montana, um, transitioned to um, what's now EBI, at that time NTBI, and uh, had a really tough first semester, but ended up having a fantastic second semester, second year. Yeah, so... Well, that's the the timing in your life when I got to meet you, and uh, it was a pleasure for sure getting to hang out. We played a lot of soccer and uh, went to coffee shops together. So, yeah, it was a good time together. Yeah. Always nice to have the Marys in your back pocket and go. Hey, there you go. Do something. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, today you are a financial planner or advisor. Um, 
Can you share a little bit about what that entails? And then, you know, what got you interested in even moving into that type of a role? Yeah. So, you know, normal day in the life of a financial advisor, I suppose it depends a little bit on how long you've been doing it. Maybe, you know, whether you're rural like I am or in New York City, but, you know, most of my days are sitting down with families, individuals, trying to understand what it is that's important to them, what their values are, what kind of legacy they want to leave, uh, what fears maybe they have, and how we might use money to achieve those goals, uh, eliminate those fears, create those legacies, uh, freedoms, a lot of retirement planning, technically. Mm. Um, but uh, retirement is becoming so much more than just I get to a certain age and I retire and I go sit at home. Uh, that honestly, in many ways, I feel like my role is becoming almost more of a life coach where I'm really involved in my clients' lives. I know what their kids are doing. I know what their kids want to do. I know what their fears are as they transition from one job to another, to retirement. So it's a lot of relationship building. And then it just so happens that we use this medium called money to kind of achieve and do some of the things that life brings about. So that's that's kind of like what it looks like, I guess. There's a technical side to it, of course. You need to understand how investments work, what types of accounts make the most sense for people. And then kind of transitioning to your second question there, how did I get into it? I remember before coming to Edward Jones, I was working in the car business selling cars. And I wasn't very happy, not because of the car business, not because of anything I had to do there. I just I knew that it wasn't where God really had me. And it wasn't really using my my gifts and talents. And through our one of our church groups, I was presented with an opportunity to come work as a financial advisor. And I was so unhappy that I knew at that point that was the next step. Hmm. But I didn't actually think I'd get the job. I just knew that I needed an excuse to leave my last job. And so I kind of took the job, not really knowing what a financial advisor does and not really believing that I would get it. And I just trusted God for each step because along there were five or six different interviews, a bunch of tests that you had to pass. And so I just kind of, if I get to the next step, then I know that that's, you know, because they were paying me to do the interviews. They were paying me to take the tests. So, oh, I guess, you know, let's just go with it. And it turned out to be really, I think, a way better blend of all my gifts, talents, past experiences and passions than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's how I transitioned to it, but that's what I would tell probably anybody listening to the podcast really is that, you know, this, whether you're talking about money or about just life in general, because money is kind of just life in general, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns and you're not going to understand. You're not going to necessarily see where you're headed or why things are happening the way they are. Um, it might seem like you're going completely off track and other times it might seem like you have the world by the tail, but. Just wait a few minutes. It'll probably change. <laughs> Don't get too excited or too upset about any given point, right? Mm. Uh, where you're at in your transition. or I mean, I still feel like I'm transitioning back to the States <laughs> since I was 18, so 15 years. Just imagine in an MK coming out of high school, is there a need for a 19-year-old kid to look for a financial planner to talk to somebody like you at that stage? Especially they might, they might be thinking, I don't have any money to plan with right now. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, unfortunately, in, in my industry, there are a, a lot of financial advisors, but not very many that will take time out of their day to talk to a 19-year-old who has no money and who has no prospects. So that might be your first challenge. Do I think that it would be a value if you could find somebody who would take the time to talk to you? Do I think that it would be a value? Absolutely. Um, there are more and more, there are getting to be these, you know, fees for advice. So the way that I, the way that I make my living is if you have investments with me, but there are firms out there that charge for advice. So, you know, we charge you for an hour of our time and it could be, it could, it could well be worth it. Good. Since you grew up as an MK, are there some unique perspectives or ways that you view the world that might help or hurt when it comes to handling money? especially for someone who is maybe just moving to the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think 
you know, I'll just speak from my own experience more than anything. I think there can be, right? I mean, first of all, if you're an MK, hopefully you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So that's going to have a totally different, you know, going to give you a unique perspective on finances and money. And then I do think that the church, maybe the mission organizations have painted an idea of what money is or isn't that maybe isn't very biblical. So I would just encourage anybody coming from that, <clears throat> from an MK background to really, to really seek out what the Bible has to say about money. You know, I think it's interesting because you are, you know, at least with ethnos, you know, your, your parents are faith-based missionaries, right? They don't have any idea what money is, what money is going to uh, be coming in that month. I mean, they have general idea, but it could change a lot, right? One of the things that in life I like to think about is this idea of strongholds or lies, right? And the Bible talks about strongholds and something that's very good can be twisted. As an MK, maybe, maybe one example of that might be you're around poor people all the time, right? So you might believe, you might subconsciously, the enemy might say to you, it's not right for you to have money when so-and-so across the world is struggling to survive. Like, who are you? You might struggle with, it's okay for me to have a nice car. Well, the people that I grew up with, wherever it was that I grew up, would be happy to have a bicycle. And, you know, I think it's awesome. I think it's, I think it's important to, to trust the Lord in all things. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a savings account. Right. And so those can be those can be things that I think as an MK or as a mission as a as as a Christian even, some of those things really go back to the Bible and ask, what does it say? So those would be the kinds of things, maybe, that as an MK, I think you'd have to be very careful about buying into. And and again, really ask yourself, is this a lie that I bought into? Is there a foothold here that Satan's using to either hold me down? or to make me live in fear, even. Mm -hmm. yeah, Sam, I think that's good counsel that you're giving right there. So I appreciate that. What What do you do to help manage a budget? Maybe especially if you don't have a lot of money, you got to be really careful. But, but anybody that, no matter what, how much money they have, they really need a budget to help them guide their spending and their, and their resources. What advice do you have for the first few years in the United States? I think there's a lot of really good software out there if you want. Um, I personally have used You Need a Budget for eight years. It's changed over the years. You know, it has a philosophy um, of getting a month ahead that is helpful. Not saying that I've always been able to do that, but there are a lot of there are a lot of software tools out there. I would definitely recommend, you know, going through Dave Ramsey's course. Most most churches offer it. That can be really helpful. I mean. You can make a lot of that stuff as complicated or as simple as you want, Steve. I mean, I heard a really good rule of thumb one time that you should put 10% away for taxes, 10% away for charity, 10% into savings, and then live on live on 70. I mean, that's you can that's that's a very simple budget for somebody who doesn't have any money, who's got a pretty simple situation. You know, maybe you go and you're working at McDonald's or Walmart while you're going going through Bible school or whatever it is. I mean, you could just take your paycheck and when you get it, the taxes are already taken out more than likely. So you just put 10% into the savings account, 10% into, uh, you know, a tithe and, and live on what's left. So it could be that simple or it could be as complicated. You know, I think budgets kind of have a very negative connotation to them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get people to do a budget, you know, as, as clients. And... Now, I, I see budgeting as tracking, you know, mm -hmm. as information. If my grocery envelope is empty, you know, we don't starve. But it is nice for me to know how much money we spent on eating out last month, what our average grocery bill has been over the last eight years. And now that I've tracked it, you know, for that many years, I can see trends, I can see reports. And, you know, of course, I kind of mm -hmm. out on that kind of stuff. But yeah, me uh, too. <laughs> most banking apps are doing it now. Yeah. You know, most banking apps have really, you know, intuitive, integrated um, budgeting. You know, like we use Chase uh, just because that's who we started out with when we were at EBI. And I still use them. And they started doing budgeting software that's very similar to Mint. Mint is a great program out there. It's free. Um, it'll track stuff for you and give you a baseline. 
But I'm not so sure that Chase isn't using Mint software integrated into their app because it looks pretty much the same. Uh, yeah. Well, we, you know, we've, Bree and I have really moved into kind of the uh, envelope system style. There's a lot of different styles of budgets. You're you're saying exactly the, the right thing. that It boils down to tracking and keeping an idea of what's coming in, what's going out. And uh, but every dollar is a great one that actually Dave Ramsey started. And it's just really helpful because the envelope system has been around a long time, which it's simply like you take the the money you earn, you put it into envelopes that are based on your different categories, and then you just spend what you have in your envelopes for those categories. And if you need to share, you know, move from one envelope to the problem is the way it used to be, you did that physically, right? You actually got the money and you put them into physical envelopes, but it is difficult in this world with actual cash sometimes, especially when you get married and now she's got the money and I don't. And oh, every dollar takes that concept and makes it digital, which has been really helpful. So it has an app and you can track all the things. It's it's similar to Mint and things, but it's kind of that concept of, you know, every every dollar needs a name, right? Every dollar should be applied to something instead of just the general fund because then you just kind of spend. So yeah, that would be what we use. And we've been really enjoying using that too. I definitely think that anybody, you know, who has the opportunity to go through the Dave Ramsey class or course should. I agree. And, you know, may I may or may not agree, agree with every single thing they say, but just the general principles are life changing. And I was so blessed to learn. I got to go through those classes pretty young. And back then it was like 13 classes. It was a long thing, but uh, now it's down to like seven or six or seven classes. So they've really brought it down because I actually just went through it again recently. And, and so they've really made it super nice, um, really easy and entertaining even. But uh, man, learning those concepts, like what is debt? How does it affect you? All those things and every dollar having a name and how to actually approach kind of a, a, a framework of your finances huge. And I would not have known that without those classes. So super helpful. Let's just say you're speaking to like this MK that's coming off the field. He's heading into college. You know, finances finances are going to be something new to him in the sense of his own finances and using his own finances to pay for food and, and all of that. So with that in mind, you know, with that kind of guy in your head, you know, how do you even start? Like, what about getting a bank account? What does that look like from the practical standpoint? You know, first of all, I think if at all possible, if your parents can help you get that started when you're when you're young, you know, maybe you have an allowance, maybe you work on a job when you're on furlough. So hopefully they can help you get started with that. Because if you are below a certain age, you're not even legally allowed to open a bank account on your own if you're below a certain age. But but getting a getting a, a checking and a savings account, I think those are when you walk into a bank, if you walk into a bank for the first time, you're 18 years old, you just left Papua New Guinea and, you know, your parents gave you a thousand dollars in cash to, you know, hey, your first semester's paid off, you know, so you've got six months. But if you're coming back and, and you've got a thousand dollars and your parents put it in your pocket, you know, hundred dollar bills and I was walking into a bank, I probably would look for a bigger bank. I probably would look for a bank that's going to be a lot more recognized and depending on where life takes you. Obviously, as MKs, we kind of go wherever the wind blows us. So we might be in California one year and then we might be in New York the next uh, back to Papua New Guinea and then to Canada. Who knows? Right. So I mean, if you get <laughs> Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, um, Capital One, I think, is doing a really good job. I don't have an account with them, but I think they're doing a really good job and they're really catering to that person who maybe doesn't need a local presence, but I would go into that bank and I would, you know, I would open up a checking and a savings account. I think if you're 18 in most States, you can open that on your own. You know, sometimes you might have to find somebody to, you know, be your custodian if you're below that age, but it's pretty risk-free to them because you're not taking out loans in their name. You know, you can't spend what's not in your bank account if you open up a checking and savings account. So most people would be willing to help you Get a bank account open if you needed to have somebody, because again, some states are 19 uh, before you can open up your own account. And then I'd get a debit card off of my or my checking account. And speaking of that, so I'm sure many have heard the terms credit card, debit card. Can you maybe just share what the differences are on those two? 
Yeah, I think one of the best ways that I ever heard it put was uh, a credit card is spending money you're going to earn someday. And a debit card is earning money that you've already spending money that you've already earned. So if you want to uh, spend money that you've not yet earned, I guess you go and get a credit card because you're going to have to pay that back to somebody at some point. That's the biggest difference, right? Is one is money that's yours, you've earned it. And one is money that's not yours and you've not earned it. And uh, credit cards aren't evil, but unfortunately we have made it pretty easy to get them. We have made it pretty easy to go into debt and make minimum payments. And you can get, you can, you can really get into trouble with that. Um, but that's the, that's the biggest difference. One is debt um, and one is, and one is your own money. So basically with the debit card, when you swipe that card, it's spending your money. It's coming directly out of your checking account, right? So it's money you have. If you don't have it, that card's not going to work. With a credit card, you're not spending any of your money at that moment. You're spending the bank's money and yep. you are then going to owe them that money back. And there's a place for credit cards, but typically not often for a college student in reality. But with that said, um, one of the dangers is, you know, they really know that about college students that a couple things. One, they know that college students have bills and they're new at budgeting and they're going to have lots of opportunities to spend going to different places with their friends. They're banking on people spending with it and not being able to pay it back right away because that's where they make their money. That's they make it on interest when you can't pay that bill off because they'll hold it for you. You can wait months and months to pay it off, but you're paying for that to happen and they make their money off that. So on college campuses, it's not uncommon to see credit card companies on campus doing things like giving away free sweatshirts if you sign up today. I was at a football game for a college and they were giving away these awesome sunglasses if you signed up today for their credit card because they know a college student is a little bit more vulnerable. So yeah, it's just something to be careful for, right? Yeah. Or I would kind of interject you know, a principle more than anything, right? Is that in life, it's not always going to go according to plan. You're going to make mistakes and there might actually be things in your life that happen that would say, cause you to go get a credit card, right? I, I don't know what that would be. I just, I mean, you can use your imagination and think about that. And And one of the things that I talk about with my clients a lot, and I've had to do with myself a lot because I've made a lot of bad money decisions in my life. Probably surprising, hopefully not too surprising. I'm human at the end of the day, but, and this is a kind of a little bit of a slippery slope because this is very cultural to say, and I don't mean it that way, but you do kind of have to be gracious with yourself wherever you find yourself at, at that moment. If you, if you do go get credit cards and you do open one up and you don't pay it back, and you do pay 33% or you go default on a credit card or you have some medical bills that you can't pay. It doesn't do you any good to beat yourself up about that. Like today's the stake in the ground and we're going to make some changes going forward wherever you find yourself. And I've had to do that a lot of times in my life because I have made the wrong decision or, or I made the decision that quite frankly, sometimes as an MK, you feel very unprotected. Like here I am, I'm away. My parents are overseas. I don't really know my aunts and uncles. The dean of men is dealing with a bunch of other problems. The last thing he wants to talk about is, you know, how I'm going to pay for my student loans. Or I don't know who to talk to about a car. I mean, one of the things, going back to beliefs that you have, you know, again, not necessarily pertaining to a missionary kid or, or a believer, just my family, we always had a broken down car. So like, I just never wanted a broken down car. And so for me, it was very easy to then go out and, and, uh, and buy a car using a debt. Cause to me, that was something that I was willing to do in exchange for the peace of mind that comes with owning a newer vehicle with some warranties and things like that. And so I think you have to really, again, you can feel really alone in those decisions. And so you might make the decision at that point, and it's the best one that you can make. It's the best one that you can make on your own. And come to find out three years later, you should have done something different. That's okay. Just move on, 
and move from there. Like again, that's just one of my overarching themes in life in general, as it comes to this whole idea of money and and mistakes and debit and credit and all that stuff. Hmm. Sam, most of us want probably, I would hope at least, most of us want to be a blessing to others with our income too. What um, rules of thumb do you have about giving or establishing habits of giving? Maybe especially when you're having a hard time paying your own bills. Yeah. Um, wow. It'd be so easy to come across very cliche here. Give until it hurts. If you don't have the right motive for giving, don't worry about it. Just do it anyway. Those would be like my overarching things. Like I've, I've, I've been a very um, charitable person since, since I was young. And I, I know that I often had the wrong motives because what I, I've seen time and time again throughout my life is that the more I trust God, the more faithful he is to me. And so at times I have, I know that I've given for, with a divided heart. And so I've had to, I mean, even to the point where people very close to me in my life question my motives. And I just had to look them in the eye and say, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to work on my heart, but I'm not going to keep that. I'm not going to allow that to keep me from blessing somebody, right? Whether that's, you know, committing to supporting a missionary or giving one time to somebody on the street or whatever it is. Like, I'm not going to allow my heart's motives to keep me from blessing somebody. Um, and and what I mean, give until it hurts, it might be 2% of your income, right? I mean, we've all heard the 10% rule. Uh, I think Jesus made it a lot broader than that. Um, but he, there is no percentage per se, but it might hurt. To give two percent um of your salary but just do it uh, it would be my advice uh and kind of going back to what i was saying earlier if you don't for a couple years it does us no good to beat ourselves up about maybe what we have or haven't done so if, if you're you know if you want this to be something that's part of your kids lives or if you are the mk listening to this and you haven't been charitable again just no need to beat yourself up about what has or hasn't happened in the past. So Sam, that is such good advice and a principle. And just to kind of think through in the US, some of the practical things that would be good to know about, I've noticed a big shift in, in how even we just pay for things lately. There's a lot more what we're calling, for lack of better terms, cash apps, where You've got these apps tied to your bank accounts. And you can, so can you share a little bit about those? Maybe what are even some of the ones to be aware of? Yeah. Um, you're right. There's been, I mean, whether it's, they're all forms of paying for things that, and a lot of it's for convenience. Um, I mean, whether it's, you know, most debit cards have a tap feature now, right? Where you just take your debit card and you tap it on to the machine rather than swiping it. And you can put it on your Apple device you can save your card and you can you know use it through your through your phone or through your watch it's on your wrist and you can pay for stuff that way by tapping the machine and then just kind of like the variations of that now especially as it comes to like peer-to-peer paying for stuff whether it's facebook marketplace or you're buying something from your best friend who lives right right next door to you a lot of these apps now are um allowing you to transfer money just directly to your peers and avoid the bank altogether. That's the idea. I mean, some of these apps are kind of actually taking that platform that we are kind of the vigilantes. We we don't like big banks. Big banks hold your money for two or three days and they charge you fees and borrow your money overnight. And so here we are allowing you to just transfer money from, from you to uh, your best friend and not have to carry cash. My wife uses them all. And and she finds it very convenient for her as a as a hairstylist to somebody wants to pay her and and they've got you know two hundred and fifty dollars in their Venmo app and they want to give it to her through her Venmo app. Yeah, and when I am working with a lot of college students right now, especially on college campuses, these these apps are really prevalent. And and the way it works is simply you know if you go out to dinner together you can simply one person can pay instead of everyone paying for their own meal. One person pays and then everyone Venmo's or you can use cash app or Apple pay, you know, all of those, you just send your portion to them. So it just simplifies. If someone babysits for you, you can just Venmo them, things like that. And those, 
those apps, basically they're attached to your bank account. So they, the other person will never have access to your bank account because they, they, they just don't interact that way. So yeah, it's definitely becoming more and more popular in the young population uh, today and how money is transferred or paid for. So it's very interesting. It's definitely a changing time. You know, I've seen the change just in the last few years for sure. Well, then let's let's talk about this one, investing. And that's that's something that, again, I work with the reentry programs. I'm spending time with a lot of college students and investing is becoming very a very popular subject. And a lot of uh, new apps are coming out to where you can invest. What do you think about both kind of looking at it at what about in your college years and then beyond? You know, are, are there differences? What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, is should you? Yes, that's the short answer. Uh, can you always? Not necessarily. And going back to what I've been saying kind of all throughout this podcast is, you know, whatever situation you find yourself in, just be gracious. I mean, if you can invest when you're in college, great. If you can't, don't worry about it. Something might change in your life a couple of years down the road that, I mean, if I look back at my life before coming to work as a financial advisor versus after, and some of the trajectories that I was on, it's a good thing I didn't get too discouraged back then. It's been said that compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And so if you can start when you're 18 years old, putting a very small dollar amount, again, going back to Dave Ramsey, you know, you could invest for a much shorter period of time and still have more money saved in retirement than somebody who waits a few years and, and invests their whole life. And, uh, and so I, I remember going through that course and thinking to myself, like, I've got to be the kid that starts at 19 years old. And I did. But then through life, my wife and I went through a really tough season, you know, almost getting a divorce, moving, relocating, changing our lives around completely, going unemployed for a while, working at Domino's, which no shame in that either. Very proud to have worked at Domino's and, and Papa John's we and, and, and starting her business because she started her business before me. Yeah, I was the kid that would have been able to retire at age 55. And I took it all out. Hmm. So do I'm going to beat myself up about that? Or am I going to get too excited about the fact that I do have retirement accounts now? Knowing what I know now? No. So I think you should try to invest, but not but not if you're going to go into debt to do it. Like if you're you're, you know, a really good performing investment might gets you 12 to 15 percent and if you're paying 18 percent or 28 percent in interest on the credit card you're actually going backwards so it just kind of depends you know and i probably wouldn't suggest somebody invest at the expense of tithing personal that's just my personal opinion that's my personal priority you know or if i could pay off my student if i could pay pay my tuition instead of investing i would do that too I don't necessarily think the student loans are bad, but I would I would prefer to pay my tuition as opposed to investing. Again, I think I think there's the there's the number, there's the there's the analytical answer to the question, and then there's like what's best for you. Absolutely. Sam, credit scores. Why are they important and why do we need to pay attention to them? Yeah, I think again, in a perfect world, maybe we'd never have debt. Uh, that's you know, certainly how Dave Ramsey kind of leans. No debt, maybe a mortgage. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but without a credit score, it can be really hard. If you do want to own a home, which I do think that for you know most people living in the United States, it's a great way to build some equity. Maybe not flush all of your rent down the you know drain. Uh, it can be a great way to do that. Little things, right? I remember coming back to the states, and uh, I wanted a cell phone. And I, I don't know why I didn't, I don't know why I didn't just go get a pay, pay and go phone. But for whatever reason, I felt like I needed to have a Verizon phone and <clears throat> I couldn't, I couldn't get a phone or get on a phone plan without a credit score. And I remember being very frustrated by that. And I, I think I had to put up my own money. I had to like give them like a thousand dollars in advance just so that I could own a phone and, uh, Again, I could have done a pay here, buy here, pay here, phone kind of a deal, but I, for whatever reason I didn't. I don't know if they were just not that popular. This is an area where you know you might have somebody help you out with it with opening a bank account, but you're probably going to have very few people help you get a credit score established. I mean, that's pretty risky for most people, but I mean, it can it can affect a lot of things. I mean, it, it can affect it can affect whether you get hired in a job potentially. Again, 
not saying that you have to, you know, if I've got a credit score of 550, my life is ruined, but it can affect a lot of areas in life. Certain employers will, will pull them. I mean, for what I do as a living, you cannot have any payments. You cannot owe people money to do what I do, at least not with my company. And sometimes that can really come down to your credit score. You know, whether you get a 3% mortgage or a 12% mortgage can really be affected by credit score. Spouse might ask you what your credit score is before they marry you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so can you give us some basics of, of what that credit score is? What What is it that we're talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, in its most basic form, it's a, it's a way for banks, uh, employers, different financial institutions to see, are you the kind of person that is worth taking a risk on or not? Are you the kind of person that we should borrow money to or not? Because it really is your history of being good with money. Uh, if you don't have a credit score, it doesn't mean you're not good with money. My grandpa didn't have a credit score uh, and he was a multimillionaire, right? But he didn't have a credit score. He just never did a loan, right? And so it doesn't necessarily mean you're not good with money if you don't have one, but it can be a very good indication that you're good with money. I mean, you can't even hardly go into most hotels now without a credit card on file. So basically, depending on how long you've been a borrower in any way, shape or form, and it could be that you put money on a credit card and pay it off every single month. A lot of times when you get started, to your point, Pete, there are a lot of credit cards specifically designed for students. I remember very specifically helping my brother get started with the Discover It card because it was very geared towards college students. And they gave him a $300 max. And what we told him to do was to, you know, put his gas on it every month and to pay it off every month. And, you know, then two years down the road, he was able to buy a house because he had a, he had a credit score and he didn't have the money to pay for the house in cash. So they look at a lot of things, they look at how long you've been borrowing money and paying it off. Um, so it ranges anywhere from 450 to 850 currently. That can be your, your score. Anything above 720 is considered excellent. Probably going to get the best interest rates, the best terms and conditions, all that kind of stuff if you're above 720. So how would you go about advising a college-age student how to approach this? First of all, and this might be contradictory, you can edit it out if you want. You need a credit I, I do believe that. And so... I, I probably would look at the Discover It card as an option. A lot of banks will allow you to give them money. So you go out and you earn $1,000 and then you give it to the bank. And then you essentially borrow your own money from them and pay it back. It was your money to begin with, but they do it through a specific account to help people get established credit worthy wise. And so it's it's really not debt to an institution. You're just borrowing your own money and they you know they start to track how good you are at taking money out, putting it back, taking money out, putting it back. So that's that's probably how I would advise to do it. For parents, I've heard it, you know, going and opening a credit card with one of your kids as an authorized user can help get their score up there so that when they turn 18 years old, you know, they've got their own score. Soapbox a little bit here, but credit and debt is not the issue, right? Credit and debt are just tools. And it's and it, it is up to the individual to do well with these things. It is up to us as parents to teach our kids how to use them. So we can't just be afraid to say that credit scores are bad or I'm not want my kids to get to college with a credit score. My daughter's going to graduate high school, Lord willing, with a pretty large savings account because all the gifts that she's been given to her in her short life have been invested and invested aggressively. And so when she gets to be 21 years old, I'm legally obligated to give that to her. And if she takes it and blows it in the first day, shame on me, to some extent. I understand that. I mean, I grew up in a household of 12. We're both, we're all raised the same way. Some of us have done things the way our parents told us to, and some of us haven't. And I don't really think it's my parents' fault. But as parents, I would say, you gotta, you gotta figure out how to get your kids this. And this is maybe a little personal for me because it really was a pain in the butt. Um, I've seen people have to come up with eight, ten thousand dollars just to rent an apartment because they didn't have a credit score. And that's not always feasible to come up with eight or ten thousand dollars to to secure an apartment to live in for a year. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, so when you're talking about building up that credit score, how can they how can somebody check on that? How would where would you find that information? You know, 
going back to the banking apps now, you know, a lot of the, you know, if you go and I'll just use Chase because that's who I use, right? And so I have my savings, I have my checking accounts, I have my credit cards all through Chase. And I'm able to see it all through one app. I'm able to track my budget through the Chase software if I want to. I still use YNAB, but I can. And now, because I have a credit card with Chase, I can actually track my credit score as well. And anytime I have, if I make an inquiry or if they think that somebody is, you know, maybe tapped into my credit in a way that might not be me, uh, I get emails, I get alerts that, you know, tell me. And it's all through, for me, my Chase app. So that's, I mean, Experian, you can go to Experian.com, you can go to FICO.com, blanking on some of the other ones. But again, a lot of this can be done through your banking app. If you if you have one of the bigger banks that have a little bit more evolved platforms, Capital One, if you decide to go with Capital One as your bank, they started out as a credit card company. So they very much have credit cards and reporting of your credit score, things like that. These days, that's where I get mine because my credit card company has that. But as far as just legally, you as an individual have a legal right to go and get your credit report once a year from all three of the major uh, credit reporting companies. So that's Equifax, TransUnion, and Xperia. And so you have the legal right to get a free report once a year from each of those. So you can, if you really want to, you could spread it out and do each of them once, you know, it's spread out through the year, or you can just do it once a year through one of them. I don't think I did that until I was a little bit older, but nowadays it's easy with these apps just to see where you're at. And that's pretty cool. Right. Okay, Sam, in the United States, one of the things that we often come across in different industries and different places is, are we expected to tip? And if so, how much? It's, it's a real question. What do you think about that? So as it pertains to tipping, I think there's a bigger there's a bigger principle or there's a bigger kind of idea behind tipping. And it's, are you the kind of person that lives out of fear or are you the kind of person that lives from faith? Are you the kind of person that has an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset? Do you believe that you can create pies if you want to eat pie? Or do you believe that there's only one pie and we've got to fight over the pieces? Mm -hmm. and, and this is kind of going back to we talked a little bit about tithing too. And a lot of that same mindset will really kind of dictate whether or not you are a tither, someone who gives, whether it's to a nonprofit or a you know faith-based organization. And that really is it's kind of that same mindset that then lends itself to tipping. And so you gotta ask yourself who you are in that, right? Who do I want to be? And then from there, are there culturally appropriate things? I think. It's just something kind of nice to do for people, which I think goes back to that bigger question. What kind of person do I want to be? And it has changed. It seems to me like more and more places are expecting it. And so I find myself frustrated at times by the number of places that have a line there for me to tip. Because, you know, once I see the tip line, then I feel obligated in the way to do it. It used to be 15, it used to be 10%. I mean, years ago it was 10%. Then it was 15. Oh my gosh. Now it's pretty culturally appropriate to tip 50, you know, 20. I don't know. Again, you decide whether you want to live in fear or faith. I'm not saying you're not living in by faith if you don't tip. I'm not trying to say that. I just, you know, my wife and I have always been good tippers because we both worked in industries where we where we lived and breathed by uh, people's tips to us. Um, and so we both pretty, it's pretty personal for us. So I would I would encourage anybody listening to to really ask yourself if you don't want to tip why not well let me ask you a lot of people listening are going to be coming off out of countries where there isn't tipping uh, it's not culturally seen as normal so what are some of the places in the u.s that it's normalized and it, to a degree expected what are some of those industries or or opportunities where those come up yeah I think the biggest one is restaurants, right? And restaurants, most of those people are paid very, very low salaries. Uh, not in every state because that's a state-by-state state law, but some of those people are only making $2 an hour or less. Um, so in definitely restaurant uh, servers specifically. I think your your coffee shops are really expecting it more and more. Um, now your delivery drivers, uh, a lot of that, and some of that's mandatory now. I mean, if you order your groceries from Walmart and you have it delivered, some of those are built in now. You don't even have the choice. But a lot of your delivery drivers, whether it's pizza, 
DoorDash, that kind of stuff. I'm not using Uber or Lyft for a while, so I don't know if those places are encouraging you to do it. Yeah, um, those those have those pretty pretty close to built in too. Yeah, I mean, in the hair industry, which is where my wife is, it's apparently I didn't even know. I mean, she's been a hairdresser for eight years, so she's been getting tips for eight years, but it's very common, very common, you know. Yeah. Well, and even like in that serving industry, there's a difference. So if you are at a fast food restaurant and you're ordering something, that's not normally a tipping situation. But if you're sitting at a sit down restaurant and someone's bringing serving you order, you're ordering to them, they go get your drinks, they go get the food and bring it to you. That's what we're referring to. And that's usually typically culturally uh, 20% uh, is what would be seen as normal there to give. And so, yeah, it's included on the receipt and everything so that you can just add it right in. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, it's not obviously all food industries. So I would just say like if you're coming back and you're not familiar, just be okay with not knowing sometimes. Mm. It's the life of an MK to some extent. Don't feel sorry for yourself though. I mean, I think being an MK is the best. Uh, I am so proud of being an MK, but it has come with its learning curve. I mm. mean, and and you might not be you're, you might be frustrated with okay in what situations do I tip and why not at a fast food restaurant but why you know but at this one you know which it feels kind of like a fast food restaurant I could just all I did is walk into Chili's and pick up my takeout order and yet there's still a tip line there like it feels kind of like fast food but it's not mm. like just be okay with that like just feel I mean you're probably gonna make mistakes you're probably not gonna do things the right way I mean probably where your flip-flops places that you're not supposed to and you just, you just own who you are and be proud of it and, and just be okay with with the process of learning in that because mm. yeah i mean as you just pointed out there are so many nuances to just about everything that we've talked about so far yeah some of the things that i've already said i'm i, I could really go on and on and really get on a soapbox but you're not better than anybody else if you're an mk you're certainly not less than anybody else if you're an MK. You have unique challenges, but so do the people back here, right? So just try to be understanding and 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 full of grace towards yourself, but with others too. I mean, as an MK, I think you have, I can think of more advantages than disadvantages personally, but it doesn't always feel that way. It, it doesn't always feel that way. I would just encourage anybody that is an MK, be be proud of who you are. Um, to come back with some level of confidence that you have a different perspective on the world that most here in the United States don't, and they need it. They need your perspective, just like you need their perspective. We're all better for our experiences, and we can't all experience them all. So when we can share those experiences and help make each other more rounded, that's actually a really, really, really good thing. So obviously today's topic is money, but it money is just one aspect of our lives, really. And usually if you're good in one area of your life, you're good in other areas of your life. But yeah, I just think that if you're an MK, you, know, you probably haven't heard a lot about money, uh, but that's okay. A lot of people back here aren't taught a lot about money either. <laughs> you, be, you might feel like you're at a disadvantage because you don't know what a credit score is. You don't know what a bank account is. A lot of kids back here don't either, um, you know, so you're not necessarily a disadvantage there, but um, just don't be too hard on yourself. Ask for help whenever you can. Be okay with making mistakes. All the cliche stuff, right? But they are cliches for a reason. I was going to say, I think what you guys are doing is awesome. You know, I mean, the uh, MK reentry program is not something that I think was very prevalent when, you know, I came back. Uh, personally. And uh, so I think what you guys are doing is awesome. I, you know, anybody who is taking the time to listen to this podcast, obviously is somewhat connected with you guys because who wants to listen to three people ramble for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> but I think that, you know, touching base with you guys, you're a huge resource to any MK coming back, go through, go through the reentry programs, go through the seminars, go the things that you guys are doing. It's awesome. Life, life is about people. That's really what it is, right? And so that if you can connect yourself with more people, it's probably going to be okay. Hmm. 
Sam, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And you've um, affirmed us, but we want to affirm you too, just in having people like you that have an MK experience and now are using um, your expertise just to be able to share with MKs and, and encourage them and help give them some some thought and direction. I think that's that's really valuable. And we appreciate you taking the time to be able to do that with us. So is there anything that we could be praying for you and your family for? You know, the season of life that we're in, uh, we both have careers. We're both business owners, essentially. Uh, we have two two young kids, a three-year-old and a two-month-old. And wow. that for us, just juggling that has been a challenge just in this season. So any prayer around that would be appreciated. It's very easy for me to get my priorities misaligned. And so just remembering to get on the floor and play monster. You know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, uh, I find at times it's easy to not want to do. So just as, as a you know, for us, as for parents, as we're a married couple in a community, serving the people that we have the opportunity to serve, we can use a lot of prayer just to keep it all organized, keep it all headed the right direction. And like my dad always says, keep the main thing, the main thing. Hmm. Very good. We'll be doing that, Sam. Thank you very much. All right. Well, we want to thank you, Sam. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining on our episode today of Basecamp. Uh, it is our hope that today's topic of finances in America has been a help to you. If you want to comment on today's podcast, or if you have questions, or if you just want to see what our team offers, or heck, if you just want to say hello, buenos dias, bonjour, guten tag, avinan true, or hey, Sam, how do you say that in Manhui? Uh, there we go. Uh, you can always connect with us at mkcare at ntm.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is ethnos360mkcare. And we also have our website, mkcare.ethnos360.org with lots of resources. It's always growing uh, and you can always go there to check on that. Our MK Care program is no longer registration based. So all Ethnos360 families are all enrolled. So just head over to the website and get your account there today. Well, until next time, this is Pete, Steve and Sam. We just want to say thank you and we'll see you alongside on the journey.